Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Anthony Dworkin. I'm a senior policy fellow at ECFR and I'm standing in this week for the regular host, Mark Leonard. This week, we will talk about the global distribution of COVID-19 vaccines and the geopolitics surrounding it. So this year, obviously, that's just ending has been dominated by COVID-19. And we're all looking forward to 2021 when the rollout of vaccines will hopefully contribute to bringing the pandemic under control. In a way, it's a remarkable achievement that the first vaccines are already being administered less than a year after the genetic sequence of this new disease was mapped. But the use of vaccines has enormous implications for public health, for economics, and for the political reputation of countries around the world. And huge questions lie ahead about how vaccines will be distributed around the world, whether the richest countries will monopolize supplies, and how power politics will affect their deployment. So to discuss these questions, we have two fantastic guests joining us. First, Gunilla Carlson, Vice Chair of the Global Fund Strategy Committee, former Deputy Director of UNAIDS, as well as former Swedish Minister for International Development Cooperation and an ECFR Council member. And Elena Kickbush, Founding Director and Chair of the Global Health Center at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, and one of Europe's leading experts on global public health. Thank you both very much for joining us to discuss this hugely important and timely subject. Gunilla, if I could just come to you first. How do you see, as we, as we enter this period when the vaccines will increasingly be, you know, assume this kind of huge importance, how do you see the progress towards the goal of effectively and fairly distributing vaccines around the world? Thank you, Anthony, and it's great to be here together with Ilona. I must start with saying that I think the whole COVID crisis has fast-forwarded a lot of different tensions in the world, and we now see in nations, in countries, but also in regions, growing inequalities, and that, I think, is something we have to be very careful about from a political point of view, but also for cohesion and, and shared development. So I really want to be optimistic during this call, and I hope you can help me, because you could see this very gloomy. That's why I'm happy that we do have the multilateral system reminding us about that vaccine works. Vaccine is a very cost efficient and a good way to make sure that global health and universal health coverage can be a reality, but we have to work together. And also for those nations that do not yet have functioning health systems and don't have the capacity, we have not only a moral obligation, but equally an opportunity now to really work on health as a global good. However, the way to organize that, and I, I hope Ilona will talk more about that, is one of those hurdles. It's not only about the financing and the access to vaccines and technology, it's also about how do you reach populations? And that I think gonna be tricky. No doubt that we have an uneven balance and that the economics around the crisis have also affected the low-income countries very, very harshly. So from my point of view, I think we have a great opportunity to show that multilateralism work and that we can, can bring global goods 
to everyone, but we have to be mindful about the challenges and the time. And I know that this will be really a test, not only for global solidarity, but equally also that nations can enforce their own capacity and make sure that they work with communities and innovations to make sure that everyone will get vaccinated. Thanks, Gunilla, for your comments. A test indeed. And Elena, if I could then pick up with you, as Gunilla said, the, you know, this is a, a challenge for the multilateral system. And obviously, the central vehicle by which the international, the multilateral approach to vaccines is being developed is this new initiative, COVAX, set up by the World Health Organization in association with two other international health organizations. And I wonder if you could just give us your sense, your overview at this point about how well the COVAX initiative, you know, has functioned so far and whether it seems at this point set up to deal with this enormous question of ensuring fair global distribution of this enormous public good. Thank you, Anthony. I think we have to acknowledge that uh, COVAX has been an extraordinary achievement set up in about, you know, half a year, just about six months, getting over 180 member states of the WHO involved, organizing a whole range of first uh, donations and fundraising drives, etc. I always tell people to compare it with the couple of years it took us to set up the Global Fund for AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. So first of all, we must be realistic. What can you achieve in uh, six to eight months? And uh, of course, when COVAX was uh, put in place, nobody expected that we would have a vaccine as quickly as we have. Actually, I should say that we would have several vaccines as quickly as we have. Of course, this uh, whole COVAX enterprise was hampered because the United States, as one of the key actors, did not participate that is why for the success of COVAX, it will also be very important whether the US comes back not only to the WHO table, which is clear, but whether it will join COVAX. And that means both politically and financially, but or whether it will go down a different road as it did initially in the AIDS pandemic, and that is create its own organization like PEPFAR, which has been one of the suggestions. Also, one of the things one talks too little about when one is talking COVAX, we don't only have the Western vaccines, if I can call them that. Everybody is looking at all the Western companies. We're looking at IP issues. The World Trade Organization, of course, plays a major role here. And so who will head that organization becomes critical for global health, for example, but, you know, we are close to the approval of the Sinovac vaccine. We're already seeing that developing countries, Indonesia being one of them, are making agreements uh, with China on the delivery of the, in quotes, Chinese vaccine. So we're seeing geopolitics play out in a number of ways. And I would just hope 
that the World Health Organization, the ACT Accelerator and COVAX in particular are able to bind these actors together so it's not abused in a geopolitical way. Last point, perhaps, uh, we've seen the first billion come from the International Development Bank towards uh, vaccine supply. And I think over the next weeks and months, we're going to see much more action from various types of development banks. Let's not forget the overseas development money, the ODA, is going to be totally insufficient for these efforts. And the G20 president of Italy will be absolutely critical to move this forward. Thanks, Elena. There's a, a lot there, and some of these questions will pick up in, you know, in the rest of our discussion, the role of China, the question of, of international financial institutions and their support with the logistics of this. But if I could just stick for a moment to COVAX and, and the other broader ACT accelerator framework that you mentioned, which is this overarching sort of umbrella project for global distribution, not only of of vaccines, but also therapeutics and diagnostics. Clearly, as you say, it's an enormous achievement that this international multilateral framework has been put in place. And yet, at the same time, we've also seen some of the world's richest countries in Europe, in the United States and elsewhere, moving ahead with the flexibility and resources they have to conclude large numbers of advanced purchase agreements, which could potentially lead to the coverage, you know, several times over of vaccine doses for their own populations. Is there a risk that COVAX, you know, impressive achievement that it is, will be a little bit left behind and that that the countries that are relying on that body to purchase and receive their vaccines will sort of find themselves further down the queue behind the advanced world? Well, Anthony, I think, yes, they will be to some extent further down the queue. I mean, they already are, obviously, with the US and the UK having started with vaccinations. And you can see the nervousness already in Europe. I definitely see it in Germany where the European Union countries have agreed to act together and the political pressure on the government you know, to start vaccinations as soon as possible and possibly not wait for the rest of the EU is immensely strong. So point one, we mustn't underestimate the political pressure on the countries that have been part of this development, have partly paid also for the vaccine development through public funding and who, of course, have bought because, you know, they have a constitutional requirement to protect their population, have bought the vaccines, less medicines and diagnostics because we're not quite as far there yet. But uh, I think what has been built up through the political pressure is also going to continue with a different political pressure over the next six months. I think now that a vaccine is there, now that there are many producers, now that it's clear the rich countries will have probably more than they need, we will see much more vaccine be available uh, to the developing countries. Let's also not forget, and Gunilla alluded to that, we're talking about a two-year process 
it's not, you know, that we need all the vaccine now and everyone can be vaccinated at the same time everywhere. We need a vaccine plan for the whole world. We need to do it step by step by step and need to ensure that we learn along the way. And so I think the next six months are going to be critical in terms of political pressures and alignments in terms of you know new finance coming to COVAX. We've heard from some of the developing countries they might leave COVAX again if they don't get the vaccine like tomorrow. We'll see what the World Trade Organization negotiations bring on the waiver. So, you know, there's six, seven issues that need to be dealt with, financing, logistics, politics, And I think that's just real life of global health. And we need the pressure of civil society. We need the pressure within parliaments in the countries of the West to say to countries and governments, we need you to be solidaric. No one is safe until everyone is safe. But let's not forget the role of parliaments in our Western democracies. They have to give that message. Yes, indeed. As as you say, this is the, the politics of global health playing out and in a way with the stakes that are that are now higher than at any time in, in recent memory. Gunilla, if, if I could come to you precisely on that point that Ilona raised, you know, how do you see European governments and you've served as a government minister as well as on the, the multilateral health side, how do you see European countries at this point and the EU as a whole balancing those two responsibilities or those two objectives. Number one, the the sense that they have this responsibility to their own populations and that they have to maintain the support of their populations for multilateralism precisely by showing that it helps them as well. And at the same time, their commitment to, to make sure that that regions that are less developed, poorer countries aren't being left behind. How do you see that equation being struck? So I think on a more positive note here, I think we also have to recognize how European Union has really managed with its new commission to show leadership and commitment and at the same time bringing together member states in an area actually, as Ilona said, I mean, the competences for European Union in health is really not there. But then a lot of cooperation has actually occurred in a very positive way. That shows that European Union not only have supported each other as member states and trying to make this a more from a more holistic approach, if I can use that expression, but also financing COVAX with fresh cash. Not too many others have done that. So I think European Union member states and institutions has really stand the test here and done very well. But no no nation, no minister, no government will survive if they don't serve their own population first. That's, I think, it could be a sad fact, but as health is so close to people's mind and, and, and understanding not only about their own life, but also economics, I think we have to realize that it's a lot to ask to also be more solidaric and spend more money in low-income countries. And that's why I hope we can have this more now, what I've seen. I mean, European CDC working with Africa CDC, having partnerships. It's a lot of good political movements taking place now, realizing that 
Europe can't help, for example, Africa to do Africa's job. Africa has to be recognized with all its own capacities, whether it's about production capacity, the role of civil society in the response, and building the infrastructure around not only vaccines, but also health as such. So perhaps we are in a paradigm shift at a very fast speed. But I think we should recognize how European Union really have filled some gaps here and shown leadership. For financing that we discussed, I think it's going to be really tough the years ahead as official development assistance can't do all of this work. We have to find financing mechanism and understanding how valuable it is to invest in vaccines <laughs> and to see the domestic financing, but perhaps also focus more on global health. The development banks and different loans and guarantees can also be used here. But we are entering also a geopolitical arena that could also be shaking us a lot. So uh, I must say, I'm, I'm so far very proud about what European Union has done. And I do hope that if it can also be portrayed for some parliamentarians, not only as do-gooding with official development, but also as investing in global goods, I think health is no, you can't find any other better arena, actually. So um, I hope we can have a longer term perspective here on uh, building capacity and what solidarity really means and how we help each other to be helped. That's uh, an inspiring longer term vision. I wonder, though, if I can just pick up on one quite concrete question that's likely to arise in, you know, in the next few months, potentially, if the, the EU and European countries do find themselves with these large supplies of vaccines, do you think it's reasonable to expect that they might reallocate some of those supplies to try and free up, you know, a bit more through COVAX or perhaps in some other way for the poorer countries? I think this has been the big criticism for some countries within the COVAX work because it seems like many nations that has, can I say, over, they have purchased too much of vaccines. But of course, we also know that this is front investments being done because you don't know if you will get the vaccine. So I think many nations that has been considered has bought too much of vaccine doses have promised that they will send what they don't need to COVAX. And I think that has also been an area for, for disappointment, as COVAX was supposed to be fresh cash money. But why don't we use it like this? I mean, it is also about the relations together with the industry so that they can fast build up production capacity and do the proper investments. Again, I said that European Union has done good but I also think we should salute science and research that has managed, as it looks like, in such a rapid time, come up with a lot of good goods. But that is also thanks to that public money has been secured so that they could invest all these enormous amounts that they have done. It's very complicated. But I must say, I think it's bad if we have a battle within COVAX that they won't accept to get doses that has been purchased for perhaps Canada or Sweden, that they couldn't be provided then to others if it has been, may I call it, overbought. That's my view. Right. Yes, thanks. And Ilona, just picking up on something that 
you said before about the role of China. Now, you mentioned the way that China was had developed these vaccines um, and is likely to be making them available quite widely, distributing them globally. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion throughout the pandemic about the sort of geopolitical rivalry between China and the United States and how that affects the politics of the pandemic. How do you see the geopolitics of vaccines playing out? Is it likely to be politicized? How will China use its vaccine supplies? And is that, you know, its distribution something that we should celebrate or be concerned about? How do you see that kind of dynamic? Well, Anthony, I think part of what we're seeing right now is the outcome of the extreme geopolitical divide that was taken into health. If this hadn't happened, you know, three, four years ago, there would have been, you know, much more cooperation between also the different geopolitical powers on COVID-19 and vaccines and other things just as we had between the US and Russia during the smallpox eradication. But, you know, a big, big chasm was created. And so find that chasm going through that the negotiations then, of course, with of China and the Sinovac is, of course, then uh, with the Chinese allies and with other middle income and low income countries. So as you've seen it's Peru, it's Brazil, it's Indonesia, and probably also a number of African countries who will obviously negotiate uh, with China the conditions under which they will get the Chinese vaccine. And we know that uh, some of the low and middle income countries are very upset at uh, a number of the developed countries because of their behavior in this political vaccine landscape. And so, yes, it is going to play out uh, geopolitically. It will also be a geopolitical decision if Biden joins COVAX as a joint initiative or if he does a separate PEPFAR type uh, thing. I mean, the only thing is we always seem to imply what China does is geopolitical and what we do isn't. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, even the European Union is positioning itself globally in this case, you know, as a positive global health actor, as Gunilla has said, sort of as a friendly hegemon. But, you know, all of this is geopolitical in the end. And, you know, the issue is not charity. And that's what a lot of the African colleagues are saying. They say, we don't want charity, we want fairness. And that takes us to Gunilla's point about how will we find a new financing mechanism for global common goods? That's what we need to focus on. Thank you. Yes, well, we're, we're close to the end of our time. But I wonder just if we could end, Gunilla, by looking forward to the, you know, the kind of broader developmental consequences. I mean, there's been some worry about the impact of the pandemic on poverty, on development more broadly. Do you see this as you mentioned that the, this is one of the big issues coming up? How important do you think this moment is and how big are the stakes for the developing world at this point? I hope that we can, can I say, become more humble because the logistics around health and the capacity with functioning health systems has shown also in our own countries that this is key. And the role 
even in so-called developed countries, about the role of civil society to help people also on socioeconomic matters. We see that mental health is being discussed more widely. So hopefully we can unite now on the role of health as a good parameter for development. And on inequalities and lack of justice, I think we will have an even tougher discussion because the economic consequences of this pandemic has been mostly felt by those that do not have and many people that are well off and lucky not getting the virus or well whatever they have actually perhaps coming out of 2020 in a better shape financially and this I think is something that we really really have to watch and if we don't manage with the access to vaccines and bring that as one issue because that's an opportunity for us. We should grasp it as an opportunity strategically, but also as it's a good thing to do. But then also making sure that it's not only enough with a vaccine, we need also to have functioning systems and better collaboration. And this crisis has more been like an, can I say, an eye-opener, and much more needs to be done for many other areas as well. Thank you, Ganilla. That's a good agenda for the future and a good note to end on. So just before we close, traditionally... We ask our participants to nominate something for our bookshelf segment. Elena, do you have anything that you would recommend on your bookshelf? Well, actually, I'm rereading Ulrich Beck, a major political sociologist from Germany who died a few years ago and who wrote a path-breaking book on the global risk society. And if one reads that book, it becomes very clear what the political fault lines are what are the global interfaces are, and it provides a theoretical framework with which I think we can approach the many global challenges that we face at the same time, because obviously we don't only have the pandemic, we have the economic crises, the environmental crises, the digital transformation, you name it. So I would highly recommend reading Ulrich Beck. Thank you. And Gunilla? So sorry if this will be a little bit personal, but... um... I'm reading a lot of poems right now. I'm one of those that lost a family member, my little sister, with underlying health conditions, and she suffered by COVID. And she passed a few days, well, we had the funeral now, and I've been reading a lot of poems. And I think we all need to be reminded about eternal values around gratitude, love, understanding who we are as human beings. And uh, sometimes poems helps a lot. And Sometimes also it's more that you read your poems in your native language to feel comforted. Thank you, Gunilla, and I'm very sorry to hear hear your news. I'm sorry for your loss. And if if I can just name something I've been reading, a book by a British journalist, um, John Kampfner. It's called Why the Germans Do It Better. Essentially, the title, I think, was meant to to provoke uh, people in Britain, but also, as I understand it, ended up provoking some Germans who don't necessarily want to be held up as a global model. But, you know, beyond that uh, provocative title, it's really a very interesting and good overview of where the country is now and how it's developed over the last few decades. So that's my recommendation. And that brings our podcast to a close. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on social media, giving us a rating and review on whichever platform you use. But for now, from Gunilla Carlson, from Elena Kickbush, and myself, Anthony Dworkin, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Happenthal, and our editor is Marlena Rita.